Dear Lord, we thank You for the precious blood that has supplied the covenant of grace that we are now forgiven, that, Lord, we have received Your righteousness that has been imparted to us. And, Lord, I pray this morning that You would impart wisdom and mercy and understanding to our minds. Open our hearts that we might receive from You this morning, dear Jesus, so that You might be glorified. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're actually going to pick up the last two verses of 1 Kings chapter 18. And as we do, just want to give you a reminder of what's going on. Uh, Elijah, who is God's uh, only functioning prophet in Israel at this time, has been God's primary spokesman here in the 8th century B.C. to the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel, uh, through its leadership, has fallen far away from God. Under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, a politically arranged marriage, uh, foreign gods have been introduced, particularly the worship of Baal uh, and of Asherah. And they are actually attempting to make that the primary religion. Uh, Certainly at least a polytheistic nation, but really prominence is given to Baalism uh, and to Asherism. And now we're coming to the showdown, uh, or we just had the showdown last week on Mount Carmel, uh, where Elijah calls for the prophets of Baal, the primary, so to speak, deity that they worshipped in the land where Jezebel was from in Tyre and Sidon, and the one that she's introducing. And she said, okay, let's take your chief God, Elijah said, and let's compare him. Let's let him have a contest, so to speak, with Yahweh God. And so I want you to bring all your prophets to Mount Carmel. You have altars there. You've torn down the altars of God. Bring them on. It's just me. What do you have to lose? And so they said, that sounds like a good idea. We'll be there. So all 450 of them showed up. And if you'll remember the story, the 450 began to sing, to dance, shout, cut themselves, bleed, all kind of things. And nothing happened. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer. And the fire of God comes down and consumes the altar, the sacrifice, the water, and everything around it. So Elijah is at that place where he's feeling pretty good. I mean, he's gone to camp. You know, I mean, he had just had a great experience at camp. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I loved to go to camp. I remember when I was seven years old, I got to go to my first camp. Uh, it was a Christian camp. And uh, we didn't even have air conditioning, but I still loved it. I didn't know to, I didn't know any better. I didn't know camps were supposed to have air conditioning back then, and uh, it was just exciting. We played sports all day. We uh, had some great music, and uh, the, I even actually understood what the, the preacher was talking about. He told some great stories, and I mean, it was just a great experience. So every year I went all the way up till I was 18. I just thought camp was the ultimate. I thought if I could get a job just working and living at camp, this would be it. And so I actually had that opportunity my senior year uh, after I finished school, and uh, I got hired to come and, and to do these boys' camps all over the state and to be a counselor. And I just thought, this is the greatest job anyone can ever have. This will just be spiritually unbelievable. After about the fourth week, I was ready to poke my eyes out. I was just thinking, I don't think man has been meant to live at a boys' camp. Uh, and... Um, I said, I, I just realized, you know, that was all good for a week, and two weeks was good, and three weeks, and four, oh man, this is, and I've got six more to go. And uh, <clears throat> what I learned that summer, as, much, as great as camp is, it's not so great to just live at camp. You know what I mean? Sometimes you've got to come back home 
And, and you start to appreciate home a whole lot more uh, when you don't have hot water and when you're eating the same powder eggs for about six weeks in a row. I mean, there's some things I started to love about home. And I just learned the lesson that uh, camp is meant to be a special event. And it's certainly that something can be used in your life, but you weren't meant to live there. Same token, we're not meant to live in the valleys either. Not meant to live on the mountaintop, but we're not meant to live in the valleys. And I know people don't normally choose to go to a valley, but sometimes people get in a valley and kind of get stuck there. And they don't want to take steps to get out of the valley. Uh, they don't want to believe or hope that there could be anything else. It just becomes more comfortable, and at least I know my valley. I know the bottom of the mountain. And the truth of it is, God wants to use those times, and He wants us to recognize that there are others right there with us, whether we be on the mountain, whether we, we be in the pit of the valley. Uh, and also, God wants us to, to grow from those experiences. He wants us to learn from those experiences. And Elijah is in that exact situation. He has just had a mountaintop experience, literally. He has had a mountaintop experience. But then things are not going to go quite as he had anticipated they won't go quite as well as he had hoped. Let's read here. Uh, he's just pronounced that rain would be coming after a three-year drought. He's just whipped the, the prophets of Baal, and he's excited. And the Bible tells us in verse 45 of chapter 18, Meanwhile, the sky grew black, and the winds rose, and the heavy rain came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab, all the way to Jezreel. Now, that's, that's quite an accomplishment because this is like 14 miles. And granted, Elijah's been living in the desert, and, and uh, he, he makes his way by foot, and he's probably in good shape, but he is really inspired here to run 14 miles. And if you stop and think about it, what would possess a man to run 14 miles, uh, not just to get out of the rain? I mean, he's been living, he's been in the desert a long time, okay? He's been out there for a long time, so he's not afraid of the rain. But what would possess him to want to run to Jezreel? This is the place where Jezebel is actually her vacation home. Uh, this is where Ahab and Jezebel are. And they have wanted to kill him for some time. Jezebel has been his adversary for a long time. And so he's taking off, he's running, and he's running toward Jezreel where Jezebel is. And what occurs? Well, th let's just read here what happens. I, I think he's pretty excited because he thinks... Something's going to happen here. I mean, there's going to be revival in the land. Something is going to happen. I'm so excited about what God just did and the way He showed Himself. This is my plan all along. I'm so excited about it. And then we pick up verse 19. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah has done and how he had killed the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, May the gods deal with me, be ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life that as one of them. What? I mean, I'm so excited. I'm running there, and I'm just hoping when I get there, and I'm fully anticipating that Ahab's going to tell Jezebel... And they're just going to go, oh, we were so wrong. What were we thinking? Get rid of all those idols and everything. And let's worship the true God, Yahweh. Revival in the land. It's coming. That's what's going to happen. But that's not what happens. He gets Before he gets into the city, he comes to that, that entrance there. And one of her messengers says, let me tell you something. You're going to be dead just like those prophets. If not, so may the gods do to me. 
that is not what I was expecting. Matter of fact, maybe at least she's not going to repent, but the people saw what happened. A lot of people saw what happened. They know the story. Maybe they'll revolt and get rid of Jezebel. They'll throw them out of office. That's what needs to happen. But he gets there. There's not even anybody with a picket sign saying Yahweh's great. Uh, give Jezebel back or anything. I mean, there's nothing going on. And then we turn to this point. I mean, he's been overly optimistic probably, wouldn't you say? If he's overly optimistic now, he's about to be overly pessimistic. Let's, let's pick up here. And it says, then Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he just had a mountaintop experience. It was phenomenal. It was everything he had hoped it would be. I mean, fire came down from heaven. What else do you want? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, maybe you're thinking in my neighborhood, if I can get all my neighbors together and I get God to call down fire, things would be different in my neighborhood. Things be different in my house. Things are going to be different. I tell you, people will listen to me. i got a plan. You're going to hear me now. They're going to do what I say. They'll want to do whatever I tell them, and things will be good. But, uh, no. That's not the way it works, is it? Elijah's afraid. He starts running. I, I, I'm, in, I'm in euphoria, and I'm in pessimism now. I'm, I'm running away. I'm afraid. This is the guy who just stood up to 450 prophets of Baal alone. How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you what probably happened is that he was so optimistic that this is how everything's going to change. And he sees there's nothing different. They're still afraid of the king and the queen. They, they still are in fear. And Jezebel still wants to kill me. Have you ever put a lot of energy or effort into a project or an event? A relationship, and you put all this energy, and maybe something happened, and you thought, now things will be different, and then you go, and then it's not any different. I, I still got the same job. I didn't really make that much money, and things just didn't work out like I thought. My kids still act the same way. My husband's still like he was. It, it didn't work. And then you just kind of defeated. You kind of become overly pessimistic. Here's Elijah. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, he left his servant. Interesting enough, um, Elijah's not a wealthy man. I mean, the guy's uh, been living in the woods pretty much, and then he was living in a foreign land where he lived with a widow. So, I mean, he, he really hadn't had any money we, to speak of for sure. So, who is this guy, his servant? Well, I'll tell you, his servant's kind of his apprentice. So, basically, what he's doing is he's leaving his staff. Hey, I got one on my staff, and you stay here. I'm gone. All right? He's basically leaving the ministry. This, this whole thing didn't work. God hadn't come through like he was supposed to. Nothing's happened. So he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree and sat on the tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Hey, you ever made a statement like that? I've had enough, God. Just take me. I want to die. Don't act super spiritual. You actually have. If not, you will, okay? We all go through that time. Matter of fact, I was reading an article um, from Psychology Today on Monday, and it said 95% of people in America, before they die, will at some point in their life experience a time of depression. 95%. So that's all of us, except for those three or four of you. And um, you're lying probably, but nevertheless, that's, we, we've all been there. 
We're all there or going to be there. That's really one of the... We're in one of those three places. And I'm not necessarily talking about clinically depressed where you can't get out of bed for a year. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you just really are despondent and completely discouraged and that's all you can see. Where you just think, God, if you would just take me. It would be so much... Please, God, just take me. Now, interestingly enough, what he doesn't do is... He doesn't say or doesn't feel and doesn't believe that he can do it himself. And I think that's a key verse right there. Uh, Elijah realizes he has no right to take his own life. That's God. And God's hand decides when we are to go. It's not, we're not given that right. And so I think it's imperative that we recognize that. But he prays that just as many of you have prayed that, even if for just a moment. And it's interesting how God will minister to him here. I think this is a great prescription of how we can minister to others. It's a pretty good example. It's God. So uh, it's God how he ministers to Elijah right here. And we'll see that he will basically minister to him emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually. He'll minister to the whole man, body, soul, heart, and mind. Let's see what God does for him here. Uh, First of all, he's, he's listened to him. He listens to him right here. He listens to him rant and rave and pray this prayer. And then he allows him to rest. The Bible says, Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So God listens to him, and then he lets him sleep. You know, sometimes, my, my former pastor, uh, Jimmy Draper, used to say this, Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Do you realize that? Sometimes, physically, we are so tired and so drained that we just need to, to rest for a little while. Not 25 days, uh, but maybe a day, maybe a few hours. That's maybe the most spiritual thing you could do is just go to sleep for a little while. And that was certainly true with Elijah. And all at once, the angel touched him. We'll see it twice. The angel of the Lord touches him. So he listens to him. He allows him to rest, and then he touches him. Those are great prescriptions for us. When... We need to, when people go through tragedies or suffering, to, to listen to them. To allow them some time to rest. To touch them. To give them a hug. Not to have to say the magic word, because there's not one, by the way. Usually the best thing you can say is nothing. And if you're, if you're thinking, I've got to come up with something, you don't. Listen. Rest. Touch. And then continue here. And then he says... Get up and eat. Look around you, and by his head there was a cake of bread baked over the coals and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. What was the next thing he did? He, he fed him. He gave him something to eat. I mean, this isn't rocket science type of stuff. Here's Elijah dealing probably with depression, so to speak. And he listens to him. He allows him to rest. He feeds him, and he touches him what God does. That's a great prescription for us. That's a great thing for us to remember that we don't have to have all the answers. I was with a couple last night yesterday and who lost a child and asking them a question, you know, what do you need? And they said, you know, right now, this is what we need. We just need friends and food and family and time. We, we don't want to hear anybody's advice right now. 
that's a good word for us. That we don't need to come up with the advice. We don't need to come up with the word. This is a good prescription. This is one you ought to write down. Next time you wonder what to do, this is what you do right here. And uh, let the counselors and the people who are professionally trained handle that. And, and you can do these things. I don't care if you don't know one Bible verse and can't see out of one eye and your right leg doesn't work. Okay, you can do this, all right? So there's, really, everybody can do this one, all right? You can listen. You can allow them to rest. You can give them a touch or a hug. You can feed them. Sometimes it's very spiritual to take people food. You, it, you can do that. And then we see this. He continues here and he says, Then the angel of the Lord came back again and he touched him again. He touches him a second time. And he says, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Does anyone know what Mount Horeb actually is? What's another name for Mount Horeb? Sinai. You see the parallelisms between Moses and Elijah? Here's 40 days and 40 nights. to, And now he's gone to the mountain of God, Horeb, or Sinai as we call it. He's gone to find God, so to speak. He's gone to experience God. And then he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Why have you come here? Well, hey, I was on uh, Mount Carmel. That didn't seem to work real, real well. So I'm coming over here to Sinai. Matter of fact, I know this is where Moses came. This is where Moses experienced. This is what we believe the mountain of God is. And by the way, when God asks you questions, it's not because He doesn't know the answer. It's like when we ask our kids, what are you doing here? Why are you eating that? Why didn't you do that? We know what the answer is. It's for them. It's a learning time for them to understand the process of why and how they got to where they are. So is with God. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. God listens to him. And he says, um, the Lord said, go stand out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord's about to pass by. What's interesting, a lot of the commentators right here in the Hebrew, it's actually a cleft inside the mountain. Many of the commentators think this is the same spot that Moses went to when he asked God to show himself. And God passed by. And literally in the Hebrew, what's probably going on is he saw the shadow of God. That's all of the glory he could even stand to see was the shadow of God. And many commentators think it's the same spot, that it was probably known by the ancients at this point, that special place. And this is where Elijah is. And he's asking God, just like Moses asked him, to show himself. And the Lord says, go stand out there. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. And the Lord was not in the wind. But the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And what's interesting about that is we know from Isaiah um, chapter 26 that the wind is a picture of the judgment of God, a windstorm. And so and many of the ancients would refer and think of a windstorm as the, the Spirit of God moving sometimes. And we, we see that throughout the Scripture. And of course, the fire, that's the way God had spoken to Moses when he went into the desert and he saw the burning bush. And God spoke through the fire. And Elijah's probably thinking, because he's thinking God speaks through big events, isn't that how transformation occurs? He'll be in the fire. 
He'll be in the windstorm. That's the way He spoke to Moses. I'm right here where Moses was, but God's not speaking the fire. Then there's an earthquake. Well, God had spoke through the earthquake right there at Sinai to the children of Israel who through Corin led a, a rebellion. And God caused an earthquake to occur. And what's interesting, God sometimes speaks through those, but not always. You can't put God in a box like that. And perhaps Elijah had God in that box. That This is how He moves. This is how He speaks. This is how things happen. But in reality... We see that God speaks in this way. He says, and after a fire came a gentle whisper. We're so used to wanting camp. What an experience when God does transformation day by day through the whisper, through His Word. As we read the voice of God, the whisper of God that is able to transform our hearts. He continues, he says, when Elisha heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said, Elijah, what are you doing here? You just experienced God. Now, now, now what are you doing here? He's trying to say, it's, it's time to go. Time to move on. And Elijah's stuck. This is what makes me think he's depressed because he just hears the same story. I mean, he just had God do all these things. God's spoken to him. What are you doing here? Well, let me tell you again. Maybe you didn't hear me, God. Let me share with you all the things that I've done for you. Uh, let me tell you, I've been very zealous for the Lord. Oh, God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, your plan. Obviously, you know, we had a plan and it didn't work. Your plan's not working here, God. Broken down the altars, put your prophets to death, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Just thought I'd let you know. That's why I'm despondent. And the thing about it is, is he, he's got a misconception of reality which often happens when we get stuck. His conception is, I'm the only one left. When the truth of it is, he's not the only one left. We'll see here in the moment. And he knows he's not the only one left, but when, when things aren't working, it just feels like you're alone, and I think I'll just, you know, I'll just make it a little worse than it is, and I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to live in it, and I'm in the valley, and leave me alone, God. You keep asking me the same question, I keep giving me the same answers. I just, I want to be here, because the plan didn't work. And then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came in and go to the desert. And when you get there, anoint Hazel over Aram and also anoint Jehu over uh, son of Nimshu, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of uh, Sephath of Aba Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. And Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel... All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, all of whose mouths have not kissed him. So there are 7,000 that are faithful now. And Elisha knew that some were being hidden. He knew there were people that wanted to but were afraid. He knew that not everyone. And God says, look, there are 7,000 people. I still have a remnant, a remnant who has been faithful. And you need to realize that. And so Elijah basically had this occur. He, uh, he, God recognized where he was, and, uh, and Elisha submitted that to God. And God says, all right, I recognize where you are. I understand what happened. And, and you know what, Elisha, that was your plan. And that may have been a small piece of my plan, but that wasn't my whole plan. This is not the end. I never intended for it all to happen on Mount Carmel. You did. And you assumed, because it didn't happen in the way you thought, that it wasn't going to work at all. That I've just forgotten you and I've forgotten the whole situation, but I haven't. I, I knew what was coming. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go anoint Elisha. Matter of fact, he says those three, the only one he actually does is Elisha. So he goes and anoints Elisha 
And through Elisha, God continues to speak. And God continues to move. And it's interesting. Elijah was, was so excited about the success. But God was much more concerned about the faithfulness. You see, there are others coming behind you. And I, I need you to go and anoint them. And in particular, Elisha. And I'm going to use him. And it's, you know what? Uh, judgment is going to come, but it's not going to come through you. I'm going to do it my time in my way. And I'm calling you to be faithful. Could it be that God is calling us more to be faithful than successful? We want to have success and say, God, look, look, look what God did for me and everybody see what God did for me. And we want to give praise to God, but a lot of times that's not His plan. His plan is, I want you to be faithful. And that success probably is not going to turn the world around. But your faithfulness is always a stronger testimony than your success. When you're faithful in the trial and the tragedy, when you still trust God though you don't know why or how, that's more inspiring than, look what I got. Look what I get. It just kind of works. You know, you do the plan. God blesses is my plan. Here's your here. Try, try my plan. Sometimes that's glorifying to us, but not, time to, not always to God. And sometimes God does that too. God does both. He's not in a box. We don't get to figure out the system of the formula. Bing, 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 bing. And then I get God. It's about His glory. What is the ultimate purpose that we exist? To bring Him glory. There's a little boy one time who was deathly allergic to bees and wasps. And he was always living in fear of them. And one day he was driving down the road with his father in the car. And a wasp got in the car. And they rolled down the windows and tried to get the wasp out. But they couldn't seem to get it out as much as they tried. And finally... The, the wasp kept flying around the sun, and he knew that he could go into aphylactic shock and die right there. And the father reached over, and he grabbed the wasp in midair and had it, held it in his hand. And he squeezed it. But when he released it, the wasp flew off, and the boy was scared. And, and finally, the wasp flew out the window, and he said, Son, you don't have to be afraid. W why not? He goes, Because the stinger is in my hand. The father took the pain, and he took the death what would have meant certain death for his son and took it upon himself because he had the power and the fortitude to be able to overcome that stinger. It wouldn't kill him. It wouldn't finish him as it would his son. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. Though we may feel depressed or discouraged today, though we may feel like God has not kept His end of the bargain and finished the plan we can know this, that He has removed the sting of death and placed it in His hands upon the cross. And He offers grace to those who come and believe. And He says this, I would rather you be faithful than successful. The greatest testimony that we can ever have when we leave this earth is this, well done, thy good and faithful servant. What about you? Have you experienced the faithful God? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that You would help us to understand the importance, God, of, of knowing You and Your fullness. Lord, of not getting stuck in our camps, of our camps of pity or our camps of success. I pray, Lord, that we would see that You are calling us to be faithful and that You minister to us. You meet our very needs. And You long for us to meet others' needs as the body of Christ. 
I pray this morning, Lord, that you would use us in the days ahead. And if there's one that doesn't know you, that you would draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen.